Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Trinity Baptist Church. Um, the Lord is with you. I am uh, so happy for the announcement that you heard Juliana make earlier. Uh, I know about uh, this, and I've been excited all week long. I happen to know the person, and I'm excited for both him and for you. And I can't wait till we can start talking names and sharing uh, the details of that. But for now, just continue to pray for him and his family. They've got a lot of things in front of them. Pray for the decision-making process at Trinity. And uh, this is a wonderful time that uh, we have right in front of us. There's a writer, an attorney. Her name is uh, Wendy Kaminer. She's written about five or six books. And she is an acknowledged agnostic. She doesn't know whether there's a God or not. One of the books she wrote is called Sleeping with Extraterrestrials. And the subtitle is The Rise of Irrationalism and the Perils of Piety. And she talks about her discomfort with people who hold deeply religious views. She said this, she said, apart from the comfort I might find in a religious belief when I think about the question, does God exist? I'm, I've put that in the category of things I don't worry about. Questions I know I can't find the answer to. My feeling is that if God does exist, it's not really my job to worry about him. If God exists, he's going to exist whether I believe in him or not. He'll be fine without me. And then she says, something that greatly bothers me about public religiosity is the mandate to worship. I don't have a lot of respect for the view of God as some kind of authority figure who wants you to come and kneel before him every week. There's this sense that you're to go to church or your synagogue or your mosque or wherever it is you go, and in some way, abase yourself before the Lord. That seems to me such a demeaning way of seeing God, such an expression of human vanity. When human beings imagine God, they imagine a king. They imagine a flawed human being who needs to be worshipped. What do you think about that? If it's your idea that we worship a God who has, because God has some sort of self-esteem problem and needs people to gather around for centuries and millennia every week and bow at his feet and give him praise so that he'll feel better about himself, then you might as well just go home. But that sounds a little bit insane. I imagine that Wendy Kaminer would find Psalm 100 a kind of insanity because it calls us to come and worship God. It's a short psalm. Let's read it aloud together. Would you join me? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. It is he that made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. 
and his faithfulness to all generations. I don't really buy the idea that God calls us to worship him because he has an ego problem. I really think God calls us to worship him because we need that encounter with God in our lives, and he knows it. It's like telling us who are thirsty people to come and get a drink. Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar and theologian and preacher, and I tend to agree more with his view. This is what he said about Psalm 100. He said, obviously, our world is at the brink of insanity, and we with it. Inhumaneness is developed as a scientific enterprise. Greed is celebrated as economic advance. Power runs unbridled to destructiveness. In a world like this one, our psalm, Psalm 100, is an act of sanity, whereby we may be reclothed in our rightful minds. And there he's talking about, uh, alluding to that story in Mark chapter 5 of the demon-possessed man that Jesus clears from all the demonic, and, and he comes and sits at Jesus' feet. And the scripture says, clothed and in his right mind. Worship helps us in that kind of way. In a world like ours, one of the sanest acts a person can participate in is a regular practice of worshiping God. It's a sane thing to do. We live in a world that through the course of just a week is all it takes to uh, demagnetize our compass so it no longer points true north morally or ethically. It just takes a little bit of riding on the bumpy pothole pocked roads of our lives with all our trials and difficulties before our wheels are out of a line and don't drive well. We get only a little bit of disorientation all week long from our screens of various sorts and the world that we live in, the values that are espoused. We need to come back regularly and encounter God and get a good dose of reality and to know that there's more real in this world than just meets our eyes and more than that's reported on any news network, more than is talked about in our regular conversations, more that's in any film we see or any sitcom we watch. Uh, God is part of the reality, the ground of that reality. Now, worship brings us back to that, to know that the Lord is God. It's an act of sanity. William Temple was a, a bishop and a writer uh, about spiritual life, and he defined authentic worship this way. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. Worship brings us back in line with what is true because it brings us back into a fresh encounter with God. Worship is actually the expression of our relationship with God. We may say we have a personal relationship with God. Well, worship is where we give expression to that as a relationship. And as we do that, week by week by week over time, our lives are changed, our thinking is changed, our values are changed, our, our compass is remagnetized and points more toward true north. There may be sometimes we come to a worship service and there is something said or done or a song that's sung or a story that's shared or a testimony that's told that really changes our life. That moment 
for the rest of our lives. That could happen. But for the most part, it is that weekly getting up, getting ready, going to be with God's people, being there whether we feel like it or not, sitting in the pew or the chair, whether we feel like being there or not, maybe especially on those days when we don't feel like being there. It's praying when someone says, let us pray, whether we feel like praying or not. It's singing when they say, now let's sing, whether we feel like it or not. It is that entering in with God's people into the presence of God in worship that over time transforms us and shapes us like water dripping on a rock. It makes a difference that we practice worship. Learning to worship is a discipline. It's not something we automatically know how to do. And like other important relationships in our life, it doesn't happen automatically. It, it, they, that relationship with God develops well as we give attention to it. You know, it's easy in our relationships with friends or family members, with parents or brothers and sisters. Uh, it's easy over time to begin to withdraw from the relationship or take it for granted or become self-centered in it so that it's all about us instead of about the other and when that happens, those relationships begin to deteriorate. We begin to think more and more about what am I getting out of this instead of what am I bringing to it? What does the other person need? What does love require of me? And when we stop thinking about what love requires of me and what the other needs, the relationship becomes self-centered on our part and begins to deteriorate. And that's true of our relationship with God as well. If we think of worship as what's in it for me, uh, then we are thinking less and less about the other, about God whom we've come to worship. And we need to get our eyes off ourselves and our preferences and begin with God. What does God desire from his people when we gather to worship? What looks like authentic worship to God? How do we do it in a way that pleases God and that builds on the relationship? Now, I'd be the first person to tell you that there's not one psalm or, or one passage of scripture in the Bible that tells us everything we need to know about worship. But the book of Psalms is a great place to go to learn how to worship because it's a book of worship. But no one psalm gets it all. Uh, if we want to answer the question, what does God want from us when we worship? Well, the answer is it depends. It depends on the circumstances, it depends on many different things. Sometimes what God wants from us and instructs us to bring is quietness and reflectiveness, to sit and to know that he is God, to contemplate. Uh, in that kind of mode, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, might be a good psalm to instruct us about what worship looks like. It looks like sitting beside still waters and lying down in green pastures and letting our cup be overflowed and sitting in security in the presence of our God. Sometimes what is required is gratitude. That's the mode. And uh, we just need to be present with God and grateful for many things. Next month, we'll spend a lot of time thinking about that as we move toward Thanksgiving, won't we? Maybe Psalm 103 is a better psalm to tell us what God wants from us when we are in a mode of gratitude. Sometimes it's time to worship and our lives are bruised and broken. We've made bad decisions. We have failed to live up to what God wants us to do. And we know it. And the mode that is most appropriate is humility and confession and repentance. Psalm 51 might be the one that guides us into worship more in a time like that. Sometimes, often, 
We feel threatened and fearful and confused by circumstances and anxiety, and we don't know what to do. And we need to know that the world's in God's hands and that God is present with us. And Psalms like Psalm 46 might be a good one to turn to. Sometimes we worship alone. Other times we gather with the congregation of God's people. We are people who have been loved by God so much that he gave his only son. He raised him from the dead. He has called us his sons and daughters as we were singing a while ago. He has adopted us into his family. He's promised us eternal life. So when we gather with that before us, that kind of joy, maybe worship needs to be a little more celebrative and a little more loud and a little more interactive because we gather with holy joy. God wants all of those things from us. But Psalm 100 is the psalm about holy joy and worship. And I thought we'd spend a little bit of time looking at it this morning and helping it shape our thinking about worship and the kind of worship that changes us over time. The kind of worship that transforms us is a kind of worship that is focused on God. Uh, that may seem obvious, but we human beings have a tendency to keep turning the spotlight on ourselves. We uh, stop looking through the mirror and start looking uh, through the window and start looking in the mirror all the time. We pay attention to ourselves, what it is we want, what we prefer. Uh, but Psalm 100 will have none of that. Psalm 100 begins with this call to worship, calling all the earth and summoning all the earth to gather to worship our God. That's appropriate. Uh, the Lord says in the Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. All the earth is mine, he tells his people. And so other gods may be the God of this or the God of that or the God of the other, but God is the God of the universe, the God of all the earth. And so with a cosmic God sovereign like that, it's appropriate to say it's time to worship that the entire earth is called to the worship service. A cosmic sovereign deserves a cosmic response like that. And shouting for joy, which the psalm calls for, is the appropriate way to signal the approach of our monarch, of our majesty, of our king. The God we're to focus on is described in this psalm in a lot of ways in a, just a few verses. He is our king, our sovereign, our maker, our redeemer, our shepherd. He is the faithful one, the one who is good and whose love endures forever. That's the God we focus on. But the important thing is that our attention is given for, even if it's just for an hour, our attention is given to God, focused on God. I'm um, a very amateur photographer. I like to take photos of things out in the created world. And, and I've learned some things about cameras that your iPhone camera, if you've got a very advanced iPhone, might be able to do some of this. But uh, regular cameras that you have some control over have this quality that is called depth of field. That is, how much of the things in the picture are in focus when you take the photo? Like in this photo, everything close up and at a distance is pretty much in focus. That's not one of my photos. I stole that somewhere. But so if you want a photo like that where everything is in focus, you turn the aperture, the little opening that allows light to come into the sensor, you make it as small as possible. And the smaller it is, the less light that's coming in, the, uh, the greater the depth of field. More things are in focus. But if you turn it the other way and open up the aperture so that more light comes in, 
what happens is very different. Only the things in the center are focused on and things in the foreground and things in the background come across as blurry. And, and those make for very artsy looking photographs, don't they? But only one thing, the more light that comes in, the, folk, the, the, the more the focus is on one object. In worship, what we are to do is to open ourselves more widely to God, to let the light in. And so that those other things in our life that we brought into the place, <clears throat> our worries, our cares, our anger, our argument that we had in the parking lot, all of those kind of things get a little more blurry and the focus is more and more on God. We turn our attention to God. There's so many other things that we find ourselves struggling not to focus on in worship because we're humans. We bring our baggage in with us and we may uh, have arguments and hurts and worries and plans and pains and things that have gone on in our life in the past week. And when we sit still for any length of time, our mind goes there and we want to keep calling it back to focus on the God we've been called to worship together. We may find ourselves focusing wrongly on aspects of the worship hour where we focus on the musician or the singer or the song or the preacher, or some of those kind of things that our focus gets there and we lose focus on God. It's too easy to go through the motions of singing and praying and listening and singing and responding and not to stay focused on the God we've come to worship. So it's a challenge. But the worship that changes us is worship that stays focused on God. How, how do we do it? Well, the best moments in worship don't happen accidentally. Usually, usually there's preparation. And so whether that begins for you on Saturday night with getting a good night's rest so that by the time you're gathered with God's people, you're able to give your attention to God and, you know, not the other things that sometimes go on. I was told in seminary that the one rule of preaching is never yawn during your own sermon. It's just not a good idea. So we prepare. Some of that preparation may be getting up in the morning before worship and having your own time to pray and prepare your heart to worship. It might even be when you enter into this, this space that you pick up the worship program and you look over and say, what songs are we going to be singing? What scripture is going to be read? And that I might even begin to pre prepare myself more for that hour uh, just there and then enter in fully. When it's time to begin worship, turn your attention to God. Sing when it's time to sing. Sing wholeheartedly. Engage your imagination as you sing the songs and the images are up there on the screen, the words that convey various images of God. Respond. Now that's focus on God. So that is necessary if it's going to be worship that changes us. But connected to that is that the kind of worship that really changes us is worship that we fully engage, that we, we determine to take part in. Children do this better than adults. Adults, we grow reserved over time, but children just have a way of entering in. I um, read about a mom who was had taken her four-year-old daughter to the preschool choir at a church and left her. And then she went back and picked her up later and said, what did you do at choir? And she said, oh, we sing songs with all the hand commotions. Well, 
That's kind of what Psalm 100 calls for, is all the commotions. Shout to the Lord, worship the Lord, come before him with joyful songs, enter his gates, give thanks, praise. Uh, there's participation implied in all of that, that we each one engage that experience. We are called not to be observers in worship, but participants. We don't come to listen to a concert and a TED talk. We come to engage in singing our praise to God and listening to God's word and thinking and praying as we do where God might be calling us to uh, faith or to change. Worship is not an entertainment model. It's not performers observed by an audience. Uh, in fact, if there's an audience, the audience is God and we all are part of the presentation, the performance. God, we do this before this audience of one. Worship doesn't follow a magical model. There's not a holy man or a holy woman who goes through the rituals while the rest of us just wait for things to change us. We engage this together in worship with God. Prayers and songs and scriptures and messages and decisions and offerings and testimony, all of those are made for participation. And the more we participate, the more worship experiences uh, begin to shape and change us. And it's not just... Uh, cerebral. It's not just for our head, it's for our bodies also. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, uh, wholly acceptable, which he says is our reasonable act of worship, offering our bodies to God. And you read scripture and worship is very much embodied in the Psalms. People are told to kneel and stand and shout and jump and lift their hands and all of that. I've been in cultures uh, in Africa particularly where that was very much the way worship was. The whole body was involved. If they would sing this song about uh, dance before the Lord, and they danced before the Lord. And if it said stand up, they stood up. If it said kneel, they knelt. And the whole body was involved in that. And I was remembering growing up in a Baptist church where we used to sing an old hymn gospel song called Standing on the Promises while we were sitting down. And I saw, uh, we could do better about engaging more bodily in that it's participative. Uh, some people have uh, learned that, and it becomes an expression of worship for them to lift their hands in worship in one way or another, perhaps uh, as a symbol of open hands before God, offering their life to him or words of praise or such as that. Others of us grew up where that was considered a little maybe on the charismatic Pentecostal side of things. And we get a little antsy if we see hands raised because we think that, you know, speaking in tongues is about to break out or something like that. But I, the body language matters. Imagine a you know, a, a four-year-old grandchild walking up to their grandparent and lifting their arms. Does grandma say, put your hands down, you little charismatic? Now, she understands the body language, and she reaches down and picks him up. It's a, an expression of, I want to be with you. I want to be held. So finding ways of appropriately engaging in worship participatively is good. Jesus did that. I mean, it was part of his life. He, he went to synagogue every week, Scripture says, as was his custom. And it says after the, when they celebrated Passover, they sang a hymn and went out. Jesus sang. Would, would you not have enjoyed hearing Jesus sing in worship of his heavenly father? But he sang. It was a part of his life. He went to the festivals of Israel. He participated in all of those things. 
there's a writer, storyteller named Sandra James who was telling about one morning her three-year-old daughter Catherine was uh, reminding her by her behavior what God wanted from Sandra. The little girl was dancing and singing around the house and Sandra went to listen in to the song she was singing and she was singing, I love you, Lord, and I lift my noise. And that's really what he calls us to, just to lift our noise. The question is not whether um, we have a voice. It's the question whether we have a song. And when we come in here, we have a song to sing, all of us. It doesn't matter if you sing as well as these people that are up here before us. And Lord forbid my microphone is ever turned on during singing. But we have a song, and what we're called to is participate, to sing fully and loudly and openly and dearly to our God. We're transformed by worship that we participate in, not that we observe. It's not magic. And it's sort of related to that, we are transformed as we learn to worship wholeheartedly. Jesus said that the great commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, all of it. And worship becomes an expression of the love of God as we worship wholeheartedly with joy and gladness and and uh, celebration. It's true. The scripture speaks of other modes of worship, and those are appropriate at times. But it's sort of, sort of surprising to me, I think, that one of the things God wants from his people, Psalm 100 says, is this expression of holy joy, that we are happy to be in his presence, that we are grateful for what he's done, that we celebrate that he loves us and that he's faithful. Those are parts of the celebration. Jesus described often the kingdom of God as a banquet, a party, a festival, a celebration. And it's kind of scary how often Christians have made worship a kind of dreary thing. It's a place to celebrate. Some of us because we've been raised in this Western culture and we've been heavily influenced for a couple of centuries by this movement called the Enlightenment that focused on things being rational. Uh, we may have a little bit of trouble bringing our whole heart, our emotions to bear in worship. And that's a shame. The Old Testament contains hundreds of poems, hundreds of poems, which are emotional language. And as far as I can tell, it doesn't contain a mathematical formula, not even in the book of Numbers. So it is, it is not a rational thing entirely. It is the bringing of our whole heart to God. God has revealed himself as a person. He's revealed himself relationally, emotionally, as well as rationally. Richard Foster is a writer who, about the spiritual life that I have learned a lot from, and he sort of nails us on this. He says, we are quick to object to this line of teaching, that there's an emotional dimension to worship. We're quick to object to this. People have different temperaments, we argue. They may, that may appeal to emotional types, but I'm naturally quiet and reserved. It isn't the kind of worship that would meet my need. What we must see is the real question of worship is not what will meet my need. The real question is what kind of worship does God call for? It's clear that God calls for wholehearted worship. Often our reserved temperament, he says, is a little more than fear of what others will think of us or perhaps our unwillingness to humble ourselves before God and others. Of course, people have different temperaments, but that must never keep us from worshiping with our whole being. And so part of learning to worship as God wants us to worship is opening ourselves to the possibility 
that uh, maybe our emotions have a role to play in worship as well and not just our minds. We're transformed by that. Someone says we're so afraid of wildfire that we don't want any fire at all. And uh, so it, it is the fire of the Holy Spirit needs to fall and stir us at a deep level. And, and we're transformed by worship that is grounded in this personal relationship with God. That's in the psalm also. Uh, there's a verb there. It says, know that the Lord, he is God. The Hebrew word for know doesn't mean know intellectually. Of course, we know that the Lord is God. And that's a fact. But it means to know by experience. It's the same word that's used for sexual relationships. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It is to know experientially, to know personally. To know that the Lord is God is different than knowing that the Lord is God. To know, to experience that the Lord is God. That he is creator. He has made us, not we ourselves. That he is our king, our covenant God. He is our shepherd. We are his people, the people of his pasture. To know that is personal. It's not to know that, it is to know that. To know it as, your, as reality. And he's presented there as good. Know that the Lord is good, that he is loving. He is full of grace. He is faithful. Those are the kinds of personal dimensions to worship that we, we come to know God as a person. We use language in worship that sometimes we could work on. Uh, we use a lot of first personal stuff, which is testimony. This is what I believe. This is what I know. This is what's happened to me. And we talk to one another with that first person language. We use a lot of second person language occasionally, but mostly we rely in worship in, in many of our churches on third person language where we talk about God. We get instruction. It's all out there. It's somewhat objective and removed. And the call is to learn to use more second person language and talk to God, sing to God, uh, make it personal and let our first person and the second person, the I and the thou interact rather than just talking about this one. When we grow up as babies and we start to use language, that's one of the most fascinating things I think I ever see in child development is watching my children, now my grandchildren, learn to use language. God made us with this capacity. And uh, some linguists have talked about language being at three levels, that our first encounter with language as a human being is this language one, which is intimacy. The very first thing a child learns to say is not, I think that's a beautiful picture over there. It's Abba. It is Mama. It is Daddy. It is that simple language of intimacy and relationship is the first language. And then the child begins to be like Adam in diapers and go around and giving names to everything. They learn the names of everything around and they can, they have information. And the third level, they also learn pretty soon that if I say it in just the right way, I get what I want. I can motivate great big people in my world to bend to my will. And so this language three is about motivation where they ask for things or want things and they can express that. Worship, we spend too much time at language two and three about information and about trying to get our way, trying to get God to do something for us. And what the call is to 
learn to engage language one again and be able, like Jesus taught us, to say our Father, Abba, and to relate to this one who loves us so very much. There's a place for all that in worship, but our tendency as humans is to become more and more unrelated. We like to be independent. Uh, it's sad to watch me and others <laughs> sit around with people across the table scrolling through phones when there's a human being sitting on the other side of the table. We tend to be unrelated, and we can do that in worship. But worship that changes us is where we come into the Lord's presence. We come with holy joy, we participate, we do it wholeheartedly, and we engage out of personal relationship. That's what God is calling us to. To quote Richard Foster one more time, he said, if the Lord is to be Lord, worship must have priority in our lives. The first commandment of Jesus is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with all your strength. The divine priority is worship first, service second. Our lives are be punctuated day in and day out with praise, thanksgiving, and adoration. Service flows out of worship. Service as a substitute for worship is idolatry. Activity can become the enemy of adoration. God calls us to serve. The second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, but the first one is to love God. And then it is out of that worship and out of that encounter with God that we are shaped and changed and we give ourselves to him. If we desire to know God, we have to learn to worship him. When our lives stray from his will, we must learn to return and worship him. If we would keep a sense of direction and stability in our lives in this world that's shaking so very much, we must learn to worship him. If we would know deep joy in our life despite pain and difficulties and suffering, we must learn to worship him. Worship is this continual nurture of our relationship with the living God who loves us so very much. It is intimate and personal, life-changing and joyful. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.